We're in our study of the letter, the epistle of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is writing it about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven. He's writing this letter to a church he planted in the Greek coastal city of Thessalonica about six months earlier. After being with them for less than a month, Paul had to flee the city due to the presence of certain men who desired to kill him and his traveling ministry companion, Silas. About five and a half months after they have to flee Thessalonica, Silas and Timothy, Paul's young protege, were able to return to Thessalonica and bring a report back to Paul about how that young church was doing. In response to Silas and Timothy's report, Paul sits down and dictates the letter of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 3 tonight, and chapter 2 ended with Paul telling the Thessalonians, for you are our glory and joy. And chapter 3 simply continues saying, therefore, for this reason, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. As we read earlier in this letter, Paul was being hindered by Satan from returning to visit Thessalonica. We don't know what form that hindering took, but we know that it prevented Paul from making the journey, even though he deeply desired to. Paul was greatly concerned about the Thessalonians because he had heard that intense persecution was hitting this young church. Times had gotten tough and things were getting very, very difficult. Naturally, Paul wondered and and worried, how are they doing having their young faith tested so severely? It takes a test to reveal how genuine our commitment to anything or anyone is. It's not hard to be committed to eating in moderation when you're at a Weight Watchers meeting and everyone's fired up about losing weight. It's hard at 10 p.m. when you're feeling snackish and nobody else is around and you know that there's a tub of salted caramel ice cream in the freezer. It's not hard to be fired up about your faith when you're a teenager at summer camp and everyone loves Jesus and you're having church twice a day. It's hard when you get back to your normal life and to school and to peer pressure where most people would think you're part of a cult if you describe to them your summer camp experience. Paul and Silas and Timothy had been wondering how the Thessalonians were doing when summer camp ended and persecution came rolling in. Because when times get tough, what's really on the inside comes out. You've probably heard if you grew up in the church or been around at all, the most overused illustration in the history of church ever is the tube of toothpaste. You know, when the squeeze is on, whatever's on the inside comes out. And if I was more seriously committed, I'd have a tube of toothpaste here because I know it would be impossible for you to visualize what I'm talking about without the actual tube of toothpaste. If you're gonna be a, a genuine follower of Jesus, then your faith is going to be revealed more clearly than ever when the squeeze is on. If you're not a genuine follower of Jesus, that's going to be revealed because you'll bail. You'll turn your back on your faith rather than experience difficulty for the name of Jesus. Write this down because this is the truth. It's not that trials make you or break you. They simply reveal what's already inside of you. It's not that trials make you or break you. They simply reveal what's already inside of you. None of us turn into a different person when trials come. Who we truly are simply gets revealed. And because Paul loved this young church deeply, he wanted to make sure that they were getting full of God's word and full of God's spirit so that as they walked through their trials, that's what would come out, their faith. So realizing that he wasn't going to be able to get to Thessalonica himself in the foreseeable future, Paul decided to send Timothy to establish and encourage them in the midst of their afflictions as they're going through this persecution. To establish you, he says. That's an interesting phrase. It's not one we hear or use very often. Back in the Old Testament book of Exodus, the Israelites were fighting a battle against one of their enemies, the Amalekites. 
And at that time, the Israelites were under the leadership of Moses, and Moses had this wooden staff that God had told him to pick up when the Israelites were still in slavery in Egypt. If you know about the miracles and the plagues that God sent on Egypt in order to free the people of Israel, you might recall that this wooden staff that Moses had was used to do things like turn the rivers and water supplies to blood and stuff like that. So so this staff became known as the rod of God. Fast forward into the future. Israel's been freed from slavery in Egypt. Moses goes up on a hill that overlooks this battlefield where the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites. And when he holds out his arms with the staff, Israel begins winning the battle. When his arms get tired, suddenly the Amalekites start winning. So what's going on here? Well, God was simply making the point to the Israelites that they're only going to win this battle because he is with them. And he's the one fighting for them. He's the one who's going to give them victory. So what happens is that two dudes see what's going on. Moses' brother Aaron and a guy named Hur. And they put a stone under Moses for him to sit on. And they come alongside him and they support his arms. So he can keep them up and Israel can gain the victory. And when you go through all the translations in the original languages, the word used for the way Aaron and Hur are holding up the arms of Moses is the same concept as the word used by Paul when he says, that he's sending Timothy to them to establish them. The idea is that like Moses, they might have been getting fatigued in their spiritual battles and Timothy would be able to come alongside them, support them, put a hand on their back, encourage them, give them some strength, as Paul says, encourage you concerning your faith. It's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful concept. It's one of the key benefits and reasons for getting together with other believers on a regular basis is we get tired sometimes and we need encouragement and support and other people to help hold up our arms in the midst of the battle. This is why it's so important for us to get together in larger group settings but also smaller group settings where we can be encouraged, we can be prayed for, we can be strengthened in our faith. We all need it. I need it and Paul knew that the Thessalonian church needed it so he sent them Timothy to establish them. Now please understand this, whoever you are, however long you've been walking with the Lord, however seasoned you might think your faith is, you need to be supported by other believers. You need to be sharing with other believers when you're getting fatigued in your faith and you need someone to pray for you and commit to pray for you beyond just that moment. And waiting around for someone to ask is not a good strategy. I just gotta be blunt about this. It is not an effective spiritual strategy to say, I'll try and look sad at church and wait for someone to ask me if I'm okay and maybe offer to pray for me. That's not an effective strategy to be spiritually encouraged. You have to take the initiative to get yourself somewhere, get yourself into an environment where you can be supported and encouraged. That's on you and that's on me to get ourselves there, to share, to say to someone, would you pray with me? Would you mind just listening for a minute? Could you just encourage me? I don't know what to do in this situation. I'm feeling tired. We do not have, what does the Bible say? Because we do not ask. We do not ask. And it's a sad state of affairs if we're carrying spiritual burdens unnecessarily on our own because we simply refuse to share them with the people God's made available to us. We all need encouragement, we all need it. Verse three again, he says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that, underline this, we are appointed to this for in fact, We told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know, Paul's saying that when he was with them, he told them, he said, listen, you're going to go through persecution in the future. We're going to go through persecution in the future. You know how I know? Because we're believers, because we love Jesus. Satan hates God and Satan knows that the best way to hurt someone is not actually to hurt them. It's to hurt their kids. It's to hurt their kids. My old pastor used to say, he said, you know, you want to mess with me? Okay, okay, I'll get over it, whatever. You want to rob my bank account? You know, if you need the 2750 that bad, go take it. You can have it. You know, you want to steal my car? That's okay. We'll go through the process. We'll get another one. But you mess with my kids. 
Now we're talking about something different. Now we're talking about something different. Satan hates God so much more than he hates us. He goes after us, not because he hates us, but because he hates God. And he knows how much God loves us. And so to try and hurt God, he goes after us. And as the Bible says, Satan is the God of this age. He's not the God of all ages, but he is the God of this one on the earth right now. And here in Canada, we're blessed to be living in a place where for now, we have religious freedom. It's a very unusual state of affairs if you look at the last 2,000 years. There has not been a lot of places and times in history where you could be a Protestant Christian and not be persecuted. We're living in an anomaly right now. Persecution is really the default setting of believers since the church came to be in 33 AD. In fact, even Jesus promised that following him would have a price and that we'd experience troubles specifically because we belong to him. I always say when I talk about this, this is one of those verses I've never seen on a coffee cup. I've never seen this one in anyone's bathroom or over their door or on a bumper sticker or on a Bible. Probably one of the least popular verses that Jesus ever spoke. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. I don't see people claiming that promise. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus said, if you live in the world, you're going to have troubles. Or to say it another way, why do you have troubles? Jesus would say, because you're still living on earth. That's why you have troubles. What's going on? I just don't know. You live on earth. That's what's going on. Your hope isn't that everything is going to come together perfectly here. Your hope is that here is not the end of your story. That's the hope. The end of your story is written and secured with and by Jesus and it's more wonderful than you could imagine. So Paul reminds the Thessalonians, he says, first of all, remember guys, nothing weird is going on. This shouldn't be shocking. This isn't strange. It doesn't mean something has gone wrong. In fact, I promised you that this would happen just as Jesus promised all of us this would happen. Remember, the Bible doesn't say that for believers, everything happens for a reason. The Bible says that God will do something good in and through everything that happens to you, even tragedies. He'll find a way to bless you through it or use your story to bless someone else. He'll grow you. He'll give you fresh insight or understanding. He'll move you into a better situation. But we're not exempt from troubles or trials. Jesus and Paul told us to expect them. Jesus was the most Holy Spirit-filled, righteous man who ever walked the earth, and he wasn't exempt from persecution or troubles. Why should we expect to be? So write this down. Paul reminded the Thessalonians that believers should live expecting persecution should live expecting persecution. Had a friend, he says it well, he says every Christian should be prepared to do three things. Be prepared to pray, be prepared to preach, and be prepared to die. Always, at all times. Verse five, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. The tempter is obviously here Satan. And if Satan tempted Jesus... You can bet he's going to try and tempt you and I. So Paul knew that Satan would be trying to tempt the Thessalonian believers while they were being beaten up by this persecution. And you know, Satan loves to do that. He looks for the opportune moment to tempt us. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus was fasting for 40 days. Satan doesn't show up on day one, does he? He shows up on day 40 when Jesus is in his most physically weak state and then he begins to offer Jesus bread he was waiting for the opportune moment because the saying is true that fatigue makes cowards of us all Satan waits for us to be tired when he has the highest chance of success that's why when your marriage is going through a difficult time somebody shows up who seems to be everything your spouse is not Someone suddenly shows up that you click with that seems to be everything you wish your spouse were. The timing of that's not coincidental. They're not that. But it's the tempter looking for an opportune moment. And Paul was well acquainted with Satan's tactics. Write this down. The tempter looks for opportune moments to tempt us when our faith is fatigued. He looks for opportune moments to tempt us when our faith is fatigued. 
And here's the thing about temptation, and this is a profound insight. The thing about temptation is that in order for it to be a temptation, it has to actually be, are you ready for this? It has to actually be tempting. I know that's, that's profound, but, but here's what I'm getting at. If Satan shows up as a, as a red devil with a pitchfork and a snake-like tongue and an evil laugh, that wouldn't be tempting. Wouldn't be tempting. Would be like, no, you're clearly the devil. That's why the Bible tells us that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He presents himself, he appears as an angel of light, something beautiful, something good, something attractive. When you're going through persecution as a believer like these Thessalonians were, the temptation is not, maybe I should serve Satan instead of Jesus. That's not what's going through your mind. But Satan will tempt you with something more attractive like, hey, if I leave the faith, if I stop identifying as a Christian, then my kids won't have to worry about maybe growing up without mom or dad. That's the sort of stuff that these guys are being tempted with. And later in this letter, Paul's going to address an area where Satan loves to tempt us by presenting things as attractive and beautiful. And when life is hard, when you're in a storm, it becomes very easy to say, you know, I deserve this. I mean, I might be murdered for loving Jesus tomorrow, so I think I can get a pass on some of this sin over here. And Paul's gonna touch on what Satan was trying to tempt the Thessalonians with in that way trying to get him to say, listen, you know, you're ready to die for Jesus, so have a little fun while you're waiting. We'll get to that soon. Verse six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So Paul's just described how lovingly concerned he was about the Thessalonians. And now he shares the joy he felt when he heard from Timothy that they were still loving and still serving Jesus. Walking strong in the faith, persevering through the storm, continuing to bless and lift up the name of Jesus with their lives. It's always an encouragement to all of us, isn't it, when we learn of a brother or sister who's going through some sort of trial and we witness them stay strong in the faith. Man, that's a blessing to see because it causes us to look on and say, if they can keep going in that trial, then I can keep going in mine. If they can have joy and peace in that trial, then I can have it in my trials as well. And we say it often around here, you minister to people far more effectively in your trials than you do in your victories. Because nobody is surprised when you handle things going well, well. It's seeing someone handle difficulty well that gets our attention. And when it comes to faith, that's when people watch because they're thinking, let's find out. Let's find out if that faith is real. Let's see if all the love and peace and joy of Jesus is actually real. Let's see if those things are still true when life starts sucking and things get difficult. It's the fire that proves whether or not the gold is real. Write this down. Our trials are some of our greatest opportunities to encourage and minister to others. Our trials are some of our greatest opportunities to encourage and minister to others. Notice how Paul loves these believers as they go through difficulty. He has genuine concern for them. And as I was studying this, it just made me think, man, how are we doing at praying for our brothers and sisters who are going through trials and persecution? Not just the persecuted church, but believers and people that we personally know. Let me encourage you, as God brings people to your mind, just as you think about them randomly throughout the week, pray for them. And if you don't know what they need prayer for, go ask him. Nobody's going to not be blessed if you say to them, hey, you know, I was just thinking about you this week and I was just wondering what can I be praying for for you? That'd be awesome. Everybody would love that. So if there's anyone that you think about and you don't know what they need prayer for, ask them so you can pray for them. Verse nine, for what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking 
in your faith. Paul really, really loves these guys. He's overwhelmed with joy to hear that they're walking strong in the faith and he's dying to see them face to face in person again soon. John the Apostle and everyone who has the heart of a pastor has the same heart. John the Apostle said, I have no greater joy, no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy. If you're a parent, you know that's true about your children. And for pastors, the same thing is true about the people they're called to minister to. And the Thessalonians were Paul's spiritual children. For the believer, there's no greater joy in life than seeing the people you care about most walk in truth, walk with the Lord. Do you know why the majority of pastors quit the ministry? It's not because of money. I mean, because obviously the money's amazing. That's a pastor joke. But it's not because of money. It's not because the money's difficult. Most pastors quit the ministry because they feel like they're not actually making a difference. They don't feel like they're being used effectively by God. And they just get exhausted caring about people and feeling like they're not making any difference. And that's why Paul is so overjoyed when he hears the Thessalonians are walking in truth. Because for all the difficulty that he went through, all the, the beatings, when he hears, man, they're walking in truth, he goes, oh, that's so worth it. That's so worth it. So worth it. And just as a side note, it would be five years before Paul would actually get to see them again. He prayed, but it took five years. And it didn't shake Paul's faith because he understood that prayer is thy will be done, not my will be done. And he understood that apparently it wasn't God's will for him to go see them for those five years. And he was okay with that. Now Paul begins a three-verse prayer. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may, and then underline, the Lord make you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So firstly, who's the one another? And th this is a key piece of Bible information you gotta know in the New Testament. Whenever it talks about the one another, it's talking about other believers. Non-believers are not one another. They are not the brethren. They are not saints. They are not brothers and sisters. Those are all terms for believers, for the church. And Paul says that as you live your life led by Jesus, you're gonna naturally grow in love for other believers. You're gonna care about them. You're gonna care about people that you otherwise wouldn't simply because God has brought you together in his family, in the church. But Paul also says that you'll increase in love to all. And that's a reference to all people. So here's the idea. If you're walking with God, then you're becoming more like him. Slowly, but noticeably. And God is love. So as you walk with God, you should be, however slowly, becoming a more loving person. But you're to have a higher level of love for other believers. Paul would say it like this in his letter to the Galatian church. He would say, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. But then he would say, especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The idea is that you should prioritize taking care of your own family before you take care of somebody else's family. And for the believer, the church is your spiritual family. Here's the bottom line. If you're a believer, then the Holy Spirit is in you and he's working to make you more like Jesus, which means you're growing in love. If you're not becoming a more loving person, even slowly, then you need to examine yourself and just ask the question, am I actually walking with Jesus? Am I actually walking with Jesus? Am I actually letting him rule my life? And God has ways of bringing this to your attention. They're often called children, but he has various ways and means. Sometimes they're called a spouse. Sometimes they're called a boss. And God will bring these things and he'll say, let's find out if you're actually growing in love. Let's take a look. Let's have a little test. So it's good to evaluate yourself every now and then. Also in his letter to the Galatians, Paul would summarize all the fruit of the Spirit, the work that the Holy Spirit does in us with just one word. He says, if you want to know what God is trying to work in you, what characteristic he's trying to build, it, it's love. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
And in the original there, it's a singular word. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then everything that follows is a description of what love looks like, how it manifests. What does love look like? Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's love. That's the thing that God is trying to work in us most of all. And if you miss this, I want to be clear. You can't make yourself a more loving person. You can't say, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to be more loving. Just going to make that choice. Just going to flick the switch. You can't love someone well if you've never been loved well yourself. When you experience God's love for you, that is when you first experience what it means to be loved well. When you have God pouring his love into you, then you can pour it out to other people. That's why Paul doesn't say, make yourselves increase and abound in love. I had you underline it. What does he say? He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. It's that abiding in Jesus thing again. As you live in relationship with Jesus, you experience his love, you become full of his love, and you're able to extend it to others. So write this down. Only God can grow us to increase and abound in love. Only God can grow us to increase and abound in love. You want to become a more loving person, don't try and be more loving. Try and abide more in Jesus. Try and live in closer relationship with him and you'll naturally become a more loving person. Might be slow, but it'll still happen. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with, would you underline that word, with, all his saints. Paul tells them that walking in love is what they want to be doing when Jesus comes back. That's what Jesus wants to see. Now there is a ton of confusion in the church today. Not this church, but the global church about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all we're going to talk about right now, I just want you to notice some surface level obvious things in Paul's words here in verse 13. We can all agree he's making the point Apparently, Jesus is coming back to the earth again at some point in the future. That's the first point he makes. Jesus is coming back. According to Paul, when that happens, who's going to be with Jesus? All his saints. All his saints. There's no confusion or controversy among Christian scholars over the fact that the term saints refers to believers, the church. And it says they're all going to be with him. Not most of the saints, not 99% of the saints, all the saints, the whole church, all believers. So if Jesus is coming with his saints, then he's obviously not coming for his saints, right? Because if he's coming with his saints, then his saints are already with him. Are you tracking with me? Next week we're going to talk about the fact that there are two future events related to Jesus coming again. In one of those events, he comes for his saints. In the other event, he comes with his saints. It is impossible, logically, for those two events to be the same event. It's impossible. It's as impossible as it is for someone to be coming and going at the same time. I can't go with my kids to get my kids. I can't say, well, I'm going to take Luke and Noah to go pick them up from ninja training. To pick up who? Oh, Luke and Noah. What? That doesn't make any logical sense. If they're already with me, then I'm not going to pick them up. You can't come with the people that you're going to get. And yet, sadly, much of the modern church thinks these two events are really the same event. Or they simply believe that one of them doesn't happen. Next week, we're going to talk about this in detail because Paul is going to address the issue of how Jesus is going to get all his saints to be with him when he returns to the earth. And I can never resist throwing out this Chuck Missler quote with regards to what we'll be talking about next week. Chuck said, it's the most preposterous doctrine in all of Christianity. The only thing it has going for it is that it's true. And we're gonna talk about that next week. Don't miss that. Moving on into chapter four, he says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to underline, please God, please God, please God. This is huge. For the believer, the question about how we live, the things we do, the question is not, 
am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do this? Parents, you always know your kids are up to no good when they're like, am I allowed to do this? What about this? What about this? When they're looking for that line, right? The question for the believer is not, am I allowed to do that? The question is, does it please God? That's the question. Does it please God? Because when I understand how much God loves me, when I understand how much it cost him to love me, Jesus laid down his life for me, I want to be a blessing to God. I want to please him. It's what brings me joy. It's living my life as an expression of thanks to God for the way that he's loved me. Paul says, I want you guys to keep growing in your faith and living more and more of your life in ways that please God. Then in verse two he says, for you know what commandments, underline commandments, we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says, hey, when we were with you, we laid out for you what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus. We talked about it specifically. So we know that Paul had also gotten practical in his teachings. And I think the idea here is that these new Thessalonian believers had had asked Paul, what does it look like when you say that we should become more like Jesus? What does it look like when you say that we should live to please God? What does it look like when you say that we are to bear fruit in our personal lives, in our marriages, in our families? What does it look like? And when we get to chapter five of this epistle, Paul's gonna list 22 of those practical instructions, 22 commandments that he shared with them. But I want you to notice, Paul doesn't refer to these things as, you know what thoughts I shared with you when I was with you, or what suggestions I shared with you, or what inspiring anecdotes I shared, or you know my truths that I shared with you. He calls them commandments. So the idea here is if you're a believer, this is what it's gonna look like in these areas of life. But as always, I need to remind us, these things that Paul talks about, these are not what save you. Putting your faith in Jesus and giving your life to him is what saves you. We can't even do the things Paul is gonna talk about on our own strength. What these commands do, what they're useful for, is telling us what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. As he makes us more like Jesus, this is what he's trying to do. That's where these things are helpful, so that we know this is what God wants to do in my marriage. This is the direction things should be moving. This is what I should be aiming for. And as I know what the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life, I'm better able to recognize his voice. I learn what his voice sounds like and I can hear it and understand it more clearly when he talks to me about my marriage. And Paul feels the need to remind them specifically about some of the commands that he had given them in the area of sexuality. He feels the need to remind them of what God's design and desire is for them in this area of life. Verse three, he says, For this is the will of God. Would you underline God? This is the will of God. This is the will of Paul? No. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. I put it on your outline. Sanctification means designated or appointed for a special purpose. For the believer, sanctification means that when we gave our lives to Jesus, our very lives became designated for the special purpose of bringing glory to God. That's what our lives are for now. Our lives are for the purpose of bringing glory to God and he's using us to do that more and more. And Paul says this is what living your life for the glory of God looks like in the area of sexuality. He says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Other translations will say abstain from fornication. So what is fornication or sexual immorality? Very simply, It's any sexual activity outside of God's design for sex. Well, what is God's design for sex? Jesus actually spoke about this and laid it out by referring all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And Jesus did this to make the point. He said, listen, God's design for sex has been the same all the way from Adam and Eve up to today. It hasn't changed, it's never gonna change. In the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus said this, it's on your outlines. He said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man 
separate. So in God's design for sex, a man finds a woman, he marries a woman and leaves his mother and father, they form their own family. Sex takes place within that marriage and God causes them supernaturally to become one flesh, to become a union, to become one. And it's intended to last a lifetime. Paul tells the Thessalonians plainly that that any sexual activity outside of that context is immoral from God's perspective. If I haven't offended you yet, just hang with me, give me some more time, okay? Verse four, he goes on and he says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. When Paul says his own vessel, he's talking about the body that each of us has and he calls it a vessel because every believer is just that, a vessel, a container of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We are a container of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to sexuality, the non-believer is ruled by lust. The believer is to be ruled by the Holy Spirit. The highest sexual goal of the non-believer is personal pleasure, while the believer's is bringing glory and honor to God. How do we glorify and honor God with our sexuality? By following his design and desire for us in the area of sexuality. And the great news is that letting God rule over your sexuality, doing things his way, puts you in line with the way we were created and designed to work. And guess what? When you use something in the way it was designed to be used, it works well. It works well. God's way leads to the most fulfilling version of human sexuality that we can experience. How do we know? Because he's the one who created sex. The best sex you can ever have is with the person who loves you more than any other person on the planet and is committed to you for the rest of your life. The best sex you can ever have is with the person who cares more about your happiness than their own. The best sex you can ever have is with the person you know isn't comparing your performance against all the other lovers they've had. The best sex you can ever have is with the person you know is having the best sex they've ever had. All those things take place when God's design for sexuality is followed. So write this down. The secret to great sex is following the instructions of the one who created it. Following the instructions of the one who created it. You see, we gotta understand it's not about God being a prude or God putting down sex. The complete opposite is true. It's about the fact that God and his word elevates sex to a far higher position of importance than our culture does. It's our culture that preaches sex as unimportant, meaningless, and frivolous, not God. God's perspective on sex is that it's sacred, it's spiritual, and it's the ultimate physical expression of intimacy. It's two becoming one flesh. It's a far higher view of sex than our culture has. You know, one of Satan's oldest tricks is enslaving us, ironically, with the promise of freedom. Satan loves to enslave us with the promise of freedom. Here's what I mean. How many people are addicted to drugs or alcohol because they decided that they wanted to be free and do what they wanted, do whatever they wanted? They thought it would be all about self-expression or empowerment, and, and now that it's too late, they realize they've actually got no freedom. They've got no power. They're just a slave to the very thing they thought would be liberating. The same thing happens when we allow our our sexuality to be ruled by lust. You can never cure lust by trying to satisfy it. It's impossible. Lust is, is like a fire. The more you feed it, the hotter it burns. How many people are addicted to porn? How many people can't help looking at it every single day? And how many people have been so desensitized by porn that they have no sex life with a real human being. Or they can't enjoy it because they keep thinking about someone else they saw on a screen. Or they get bored with sex unless it becomes increasingly deviant. Does any of that sound like freedom? Does any of that sound liberating? One of Satan's oldest tricks is enslaving us 
with the promise of freedom. Do whatever you want. Be free. It's not freedom. You become a slave to it. In God's design, sexuality is ruled by the Spirit so that we stay free, so that we can enjoy sex as the gift God intended it to be, so that we can use sex instead of being used by sex. God's way is better. And I pray that we would all believe it now rather than learning it through the pain of experience, which is the only other option. Paul goes on and he says regarding God's design for sexuality, if this wasn't heavy enough already, he says that no one should underline take advantage of and and then underline defraud his brother in this matter. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. And this is heavy, but I share it because it's true. I'm gonna talk about reasons for hope in a little bit, but first we gotta talk about some very painful truths because uh, that's what love does. Love tells the truth even when it hurts. What does Paul mean when he says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in the area of sexuality? Paul is pointing this out and you can write it down, that from God's perspective, sex outside of marriage is taking what belongs to somebody else. From God's perspective, sex outside of marriage is taking what belongs to somebody else. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you're here today and you're single, your body is not open for business. It belongs to your future spouse. And if somebody takes your body, they are stealing it from your future spouse. They are defrauding their brother or sister in Christ. And 99.9% of people wouldn't think about stealing their neighbor's lawnmower. But in our culture, we don't think anything of stealing somebody's future spouse. From God's perspective, sexual relationships outside of marriage are considered stealing. And then getting even more intense, Paul keeps speaking and he says, because the Lord is the avenger, would you underline avenger, of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. God takes this sin very very seriously. Why, why is he so heavy on this one issue? Because he knows the devastation that happens to individuals, to marriages, to families and children when we don't follow his plan and design for sexuality. God loves families. He loves people and he loves marriages. And he knows the damage that lust and sex in the wrong context can cause. Sexuality is like a fire when it's, when it's burning in the right place. Like a fireplace or a fire pit, it gives light and warmth. It's awesome, it's great. But when you put fire in the wrong context, like the middle of your living room floor, it'll burn your house down. It'll burn your house down. And just to answer what we might be wondering, what what does it mean when it says God is the avenger? What does this vengeance look like in this area? Well, here's what you learn in life. You learn that nobody really gets away with sin. I never really get away with it because there are natural consequences, but I believe what he's saying is that God makes sure in this area that there are natural consequences to not following his design for sex. And he does this not to be mean, he does this that we might recognize that those who do not follow his plan do incredible damage to themselves and to their families, to their future marriage or current marriage. God wants us to see that There's damage when we reject his ways so that we'll actually start trusting him in faith and maybe start actually doing things his way proactively. Paul told the Corinthians as well, he said, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Solomon, the wisest man who lived other than Jesus, wrote, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. Why? Because he who does so destroys his own soul. 
He's not talking about salvation. So what is he talking about? What does he mean destroys his own soul? I think we can get some insight from a very unexpected source. You know, about 22 years ago, a guy named Richard Koch published a book that's considered a classic in business and life. It's called The 80-20 Principle. You've probably at least heard of the title. You've probably heard of the principle. In that book, he, he writes about these anthropological studies that were done that led to the development of what's known as the village theory. And when I start talking about it, you'll recognize the village theory as well. And I just want to read to you some straight up quotes from this book. Let me read to you. It says, anthropologists stress that the number of exhilarating and important personal relationships that people can establish is limited. Most commonly, you fall in love only once. The number of significant personal relationships is remarkably similar for everyone, regardless of their location, sophistication, or culture. This has led to the anthropologist's village theory. In an African village, all these relationships happen within a few hundred meters and are often formed within a short period of time. For us, these relationships may be spread all over the planet and over a whole lifetime. They nonetheless constitute a village which we each have in our heads. And once these slots are filled, they're filled forever. Here's the key idea. The anthropologists say that if you have too much experience too early, you exhaust your capacity for further deep relationships. J.G. Ballard quotes a case example of a rehabilitation program that was tried in California for a young woman who mixed with criminals. The women were young, 20 or 21, and the program aimed to introduce them to new social backgrounds, basically to middle-class volunteers who befriended them and invited them to their homes. Many of these girls had been married at an incredibly early age. Many had had their first children at 13 or 14. Some had been married three times by the time they were 20. They had often had hundreds of lovers and sometimes had close relationships or children by men who were then shot or jailed. They'd been through everything, relationships, motherhood, breakups, bereavements, and experienced the whole gamut of human experience while still in their teens. The project was a total failure. The explanation was that the women were incapable of forming any deep new relationships. They were all used up. Their relationship slots had been filled forever. All the way back in Genesis 2, Moses recorded God's design for marriage. As Jesus quoted, he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh, one flesh. God says that when a man and woman come together sexually, they become one flesh. Something supernatural happens. There's a connection that takes place that's far more profound than our world realizes. And what the 80-20 principle and those anthropologists stumbled upon, even though they didn't know it, is the reality of this verse in Genesis that describes how God has designed sex to work. They discovered that you can't become one flesh with a whole bunch of people because sooner or later the math kicks in. You become half a flesh with that second partner, a third of a flesh with that third partner. And the connection, the union, the bond becomes diluted the further you go. That's why there are couples all the time who, who get together, even get married, and they just don't bond the way that they thought they would. And it's because they spent themselves on the wrong people. They filled those emotional slots and they rejected God's design. And as I was writing this, I was just thinking about how Satan never talks about this part of the equation when he tempts us. Satan never talks about it, and that's why our culture never talks about this side of the equation, even though the data is there. Satan doesn't talk about it. It's why our culture doesn't talk about it. It's why our school systems don't give our kids this kind of information. Our kids only get told that the only dangers for sex are pregnancy and STDs. They don't talk about the known and documented emotional and relational long-term effects of taking a low view of sex. They don't tell our kids, hey, you should really think this through because you could 
ruin the most important relationships you'll ever have. You could diminish them. You might meet your soulmate one day and it'll never be what it could have been because you chose to fill up the slots wastefully. And here's what else we can learn from the quotes I read from that book. Please don't miss this. This is huge. You make a note of this. We can choose to disregard God's design for sexuality. We can choose to disregard it and say, well, forget it, God. You're not in charge of me. But we cannot exempt ourselves from the natural consequences of doing so. We can choose to disregard God's design for sexuality, but we cannot exempt ourselves from the natural consequences of doing so. In other words, you can choose to say, Jeff, I think what you're talking about and what the Bible is saying is so narrow-minded, I think it's archaic, I think this puritanical view of sexuality is beyond outdated, and there is no way I'm going to embrace it. You can make that choice, you can do that, you can say that, live your life that way, but you will still experience the natural consequences of rejecting God's design for sex because God is real. And his design for sex is real. And the consequences of rejecting God's design are real. And disagreeing will do you about as much good as trying to fly off a skyscraper by rejecting the theory of gravity. Its consequences will still apply, whether you believe in it or not. They do not depend upon your belief. Verse 7, he says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Verse eight, you wanna underline the whole thing. This is, this is huge. This jumped out to me when I was studying, you know, and, it, and I couldn't believe it had, never, it had never hit me this hard before because this is huge. Verse eight, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. It's almost as if Paul could envision some Christians saying, well, Paul, that's not how I feel called to live my life. You know, I have different desires and urges, and so I feel that if I have these desires and urges, Paul, then I must be meant to act on them. So I don't really believe that your views on sexuality apply to me. It's as if Paul could see those objections coming, which is why he said this is God's will. And why he says, listen, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God if you reject this teaching. And this is interesting to me because it shows us that people aren't all that different today than they were back in Paul's day when he was planning churches around 50 AD, especially when it comes to wanting to justify sin. We're not that different. So Paul says, let me be as clear about this as I can be. To reject God's views on sexuality is to reject God himself. And here's why Paul can say that. He can say that because it's an oxymoron to say the words, no Lord. The word Lord means master, which means you cannot call him Lord. You cannot call God your master and simultaneously tell him no when he calls you to live a certain way. I know that it can take time to do that. It can be a struggle to do that, to give God control over every area of our lives. But when you know that God is calling you to surrender a certain area of your life and your response is never gonna happen, not ever, I'm not doing that. I know you don't want me to do this, but I'm gonna keep on doing it. No plans of giving this up. Paul would say you're rejecting God himself. There's no let's agree to disagree here with God. You're rejecting God himself. The Christian can still struggle with sin. We all do. But the Christian cannot disagree with God about what sin is. In other words, when God calls something sin, the Christian must agree with him. There are sins that I still struggle with, but I agree with God. They're sins. And I desire to be changed by God so that I don't do those things anymore. I don't make it very easy for God to work in my life often when it comes to those sins, but I want him to. We're on the same page that these are sins and that I need to be freed from them and grow out of them. Please understand this clearly and write this down. This is so important in, in today's church culture. Paul, the Lord, the Bible does not give us the room to embrace Jesus 
while rejecting his views on sexuality. The Bible does not give us the room to embrace Jesus while rejecting his views on sexuality. You cannot walk with Jesus while calling him a liar and believing the lies of Satan. You have to make a choice about who you believe, God or Satan, God or man, God or the culture. Jeff, all of this is so out of touch with culture though. I mean, are you paying attention to how the world has changed? Do you not understand that our views on human sexuality have evolved and progressed? Firstly, there's nothing new underneath the sun. The sexual immorality in the Roman Empire in Paul's day would make our culture today look positively Amish in comparison. So just keep that in mind. Understand that the culture was extremely sexually liberal in the context of Paul writing this letter. Secondly and most importantly though, the Christian forms his worldview based on the word of God, not on the culture he or she is living in. And just track with me for a minute here. We're almost done. But track with me. Let's use some basic logic. We believe that God is eternal and unchanging. Those are some of the inherent immutable characteristics of God. They're some of the characteristics of God that make him God. The reason God is unchanging is incredibly important. God is unchanging because he is perfect. He is unchanging because when you are perfect, you have no need to change. God cannot improve himself in any way. He is the full embodiment of absolute perfection. There's no way to improve who God is. That's why he is unchanging. Cultures change. Cultural values change. Therefore, based on logic, there will be times when God's values do not line up with culture's values. Cultural values change, God does not. Therefore, there will be times of conflict between the values of a culture and the values of God. If the values of God constantly changed in order to better reflect the values of the culture, then we would not be able to claim that God is perfect. In fact, we would actually be claiming that God is so imperfect, he takes his moral cues from our culture. We're the ones telling him what morality is. We're the ones defining morality, and he's just basically giving us a thumbs up as we change. We dictate to God. That's what it would mean if we implied that God's moral values changed with cultures. We would be implying that we dictate moral values to God rather than the other way around. Equally important, it would indicate that our God is simply an invention of our own imaginations. Because if he's just a reflection of our own values, then obviously all we're doing is simply ascribing our own values and ideas onto an imaginary deity. In which case, he would not be God. He wouldn't even be real. You cannot claim to serve a perfect, eternal, unchanging God. In fact, let's make that simple. Because those are inherent characteristics of God, let's just say you cannot claim to serve a real God and simultaneously have a belief system that is always in harmony with the changing moral values of culture. You cannot make both of those claims. You can claim one, that you serve a real God, or you can claim that you believe in changing cultural moral values. But you cannot do both. You cannot do both. And that's why I'm okay with my God clashing with my culture. Because truth and logic make it an absolute inevitability. And if I believe in God, then God will be perfect and he will be unchanging. Culture is not. There's gonna be times and areas of clashing that just comes with believing in God based on logic. Verse nine, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. 
that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. I gotta move quick here. Here's the gist. Paul is just saying, guys, live your lives above reproach. Live your lives in a way that allows you to be used by God to reach anybody. Avoid arguments and disagreements. Don't post unnecessary controversial opinions on your Facebook page. Get a job. Work hard at your job. Don't gossip. Be a good employee. Raise honorable children. Pay your taxes. Basically, remember that you represent Jesus to the world around you. Adjust your behavior accordingly. That's what Paul is saying. So in conclusion, how do we, how do we handle living in a culture with different sexual values? Every time we talk about this, I feel like I need to just hit on this real quick. So how do we handle living in a culture with different sexual values? Firstly, we take our cues from the word of God. We take our cues from the word of God. Secondly, we never expect non-believers to act like believers. And we don't get mad when non-believers act like non-believers. We love them because Jesus loves them. They are valuable and precious to us because Jesus valued them at the cost of his life. He died for them. He bled for them as much as he bled for us. But then also loving people doesn't mean agreeing that sin is okay. We can love people who disagree with us while we still agree with God, even if they don't see it that way. You do not have to agree with someone in order to love them. If you're in sexual sin, if you're stuck in a pornography habit or any type of sexual sin, let me just encourage you, firstly, agree with God that it's sin. Agree with God it's sin. Don't, don't try and justify it. There's nothing happening to you. No one's doing anything to you that makes that okay. You're just enslaving yourself, so agree with God that it's sin. Take communion, confess it, and, and be forgiven. Be freed of that shame. And then repent, and I always say this, repent doesn't mean cry convincingly about it. Repent means change. Take an action step. If you can't help looking at porn on your phone, get Covenant Eyes software for your phone. Give it to your spouse or an accountability partner. Do something. Don't expect that you're just gonna flick a switch and stop doing it. Take an action step. And if you're here and you're wondering if God can heal past sexual sins or, or if he can restore in your marriage things like that, he can and he absolutely can, but, but it can be a hard and a long road. God can do it. God can heal. God can restore, but we're not miraculously delivered from natural consequences. If that's you and you're wondering if God can do that for you, he can, but you gotta do the work too. You might need to go to counseling. Take those action steps to avoid the same mistakes. Own your sin. Take ownership of the mistakes you've made. Forgive. Remember that the equation for restoration in a marriage or any relationship is, is real simple. It's not easy, but it's real simple. The person who sinned needs to repent. The person who was sinned against needs to forgive. And if you have those two ingredients, you have restoration. But even if the other person won't do their part, you still need to do yours. I still need to do mine. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you for uh, the instruction that it gives but Lord, I just thank you that you didn't just leave these things to chance for us. You didn't just put us on this planet and say, here's men, here's women, figure it out, see what happens. But you actually created a design. You actually came up with a plan and you shared it with us of how everything's supposed to work, including sex, including relationships, including marriage and family and intimacy. And you, you laid it out for us in your word not so that we would have rules, but so that we would have a guide, so that we would have a path to follow, so that we could enjoy these things to the fullest. Father, I pray that we would all be in the place where we would have faith in what you say, that we would have faith that your way really is best. Father, I pray for, for any among us who might be deceived right now into believing there's a better way than yours. Father, I pray that you would just reveal that for the lie that it is. Lord, and lead us to repentance. 
Father, I pray for hope for anyone wondering if it's too late. Thank you that you're a God who heals, you're a God who saves, you're a God who restores. You're a God who'll be there every step of the way, through every bit of the hard work, and you're the God of the impossible. So Father, we, uh, we just offer up our brokenness to you again one more time and thank you that you're the healer, you're the God who makes us whole. Lord, we confess that, that we all have struggles. We all have sins that we wrestle with. But Lord, we wanna live in agreement with you that those things are sins and that your way is better. So Father, if we need to be led to repentance, lead us to repentance. If we need to be encouraged, let us be encouraged. If we need hope, Lord, may the hope of your spirit fill our hearts this evening. If we need comfort, may the God of all comfort who gives us his spirit, the comforter, comfort us with his peace. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.